You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment Podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So I want to begin um, talking about mentalizing or metacognition. And uh, one way to think about that is that you're able to track your thought process. You're able to think about what you think. Uh, Dan Brown and and Ken Wilber uh, created a hierarchy of spiritual development, which I think is important to pay attention to. And the first stage of that is where you recognize that you have a mind state and that other people have a mind state and that they're different. Um, Non-mentalizing, the first level of non-mentalizing is where you think that you understand what's happening and that everybody's having the same experience that you are. It's called psychic equivalence mode and it's non-mentalizing. So the first mentalizing activity is to recognize that you have a, a mind state and other people have a mind state and they're not the same and that those mind states form based on your personal conditioning and because your personal conditioning is different than everybody else's, your interpretation of what's happening is different than, than everybody else's. Um, in a non-mentalizing psychic equivalence mode, this becomes intolerable and you, you make demands on other people that they see the world the way that you see it. Um, but what you're really doing is defending yourself against the understanding that people are different than you are and have different views and opinions. The second aspect uh, of spiritual development is to see, uh, to track whether or not your interpretation of events is accurate or not. And the Buddha spent a lot of time talking about this. Um, He used the metaphor of a mirror. So 2,600 years ago, a mirror was a dark, a a bowl with dark glaze on it that you put water in. And if the water were still and clear, the reflection off the surface of the water was an accurate depiction of what the senses were uh, sensing. But that if the, the mind were filled with lust or craving, the, it would be as if the water were dyed a bright color. So the image reflected off the surface of the water would be infused with the bright color of lust. But it would appear real and it would appear the same. So this process of ultimate reality being converted into conceptual reality. You have the capacity to sense. If you have an object that can be met, a consciousness of that sensing experience arises which awareness knows. The the sensing experience itself is then evaluated for pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral qualities. If you put your hand on the stove, you will already have removed your hand from If you put your hand on a hot stove, you will already have removed it by the time the recognition consciously that the stove was hot uh, enters uh, your mind. Because the Vedna aspect of uh, analyzing the pure sensing quality of that. Then that pure sensing quality is compared to the procedural database, uh, which is where previously sensed experiences have been reviewed, analyzed, and categorized and, that, and then stored in the database. And if you get a close enough a match to the present moment, the present moment fixates into conceptual reality. 
based on your database of interpretation of it. One of the reasons that attachment conditioning is so stable is because it's, it informs the procedural database and you keep bringing these unfixated experiences of the present moment and comparing it to your database of things that have already happened and then the meaning of the things that have already happened in, in, uh, creates the present moment experience and if you don't have a spaciousness between the old stuff and what's happening now you you actually lose the experience of the present moment and you're in the database rather than in the present moment and then you can only see the possible outcomes that are in the database not the possible outcomes that are in front of you is that making sense so the second aspect of spiritual development is to be constantly comparing what you're sensing is happening with what you've made it into this constant back and forth. This is what I'm sensing, this is how I've interpreted it or what I've made it into. This is what I'm sensing, this is what I've made it into. And in that back and forth movement, you reveal the mind state. Is the mind equanimous? Is it craving? Is it aversive? Is it? The Buddha said that if the mind is aversive, it's as if the water in the mirror were boiling, very distorting anger. If the mind were restless and agitated, it's as if a breeze were blowing across it. If the mind was filled with sloth and torpor, it's as if the water were overgrown with algae. If the mind was filled with doubt, it's as if the water were cloudy or muddy. And then what I want you to begin to do is to understand your attachment mechanism and whether it's active or not, and add that as one of the, the possible distortions of perception that can happen. Attachment is the mechanism that happens when you're frightened either for your physical safety or for or being abandoned by somebody. That activates. And it's a proximity seeking uh, activation. It causes you to seek proximity to the people that you feel are safe. Which then immediately confronts you with what kind of social network have you set up around yourself because if your attachment mechanism goes off and you think everybody's unsafe what what happens to that energy the attachment mechanism only turns off by connecting and it goes through a, a series of stages of distress anybody have kids have you been around infants um, what, what does a baby do? What's the first thing a baby does to try and attract attention? Crying is way down the line. They smile and look as cute as they can. That's the first thing they do. It's a reflective smile. A newborn infant for the first few months of life will, anything that they track moving will elicit a smile in them. That's how they try to connect. And if nobody comes, there's a look of confusion. And if nobody comes, they whimper. And if nobody comes, they intermittently cry. And if nobody comes, they cry. If by the time you notice that the child needs a, a connection, that they're crying, you've missed all of those stages on the way up to it. That would not be a highly attentive environment to grow up in. The intermittent crying turns into a tantrum mode. That's a shrieking, flailing, thumping kind of reaction. Um, to get attention. And if nobody comes, they go into shutdown. 
if you had a childhood experience where over and over you, can, you went into shutdown, it, it will dramatically change the physiology of your brain and you'll have a capacity to shut down as an adult that people who didn't have that experience don't have. It's a vagal, vasal, we call it a dorsal dive. But not everybody has that because not everybody had the experience in childhood where they were left to shut themselves off. The physiology of attachment is, is in some ways unique to humans in, because we're born so undeveloped in, uh, in comparison to other species, for instance. When we're born, um, our brainstem is intact, our midbrain uh, is partially formed, and our uh, prefrontal cortexes are hardly developed, the right more than the left. The evolutionaryologists think that the reason for this is because the, the, the brain would be too large to pass through the birth canal, so that because it's so large, it, it, we're born um, prematurely in comparison to other animals. Uh, for instance, a, um, a great ape is born uh, with a capacity that human babies don't reach until 18 months old. It's a huge distance. Um, so we're one of the creatures where our, the actual physical structure of our brain grows in response to the conditions of the environment that we're in differently than, than brains that develop in utero where the conditions are so confined and um, more or less stable in comparison. And so what you'll find is that your attachment responses, you've grown into your brain and your brain operates in that way. And the ceiling and he, and he asked somebody and he said, oh, don't worry about it, it's the rats. <laughs> In the Hindu tradition, the rats are revered so they don't kill them. They think of them as a blessing. In fact, uh, I read uh, that a third of the grain that they grow is eaten by the rats in the field. So. Um, so we're talking about mentalizing. You have a mind state, other people have a mind state. You want to begin to track them because we want to begin to track how the way that you experience things is then fixated into your view of yourself in the world. The third level of spiritual development is to understand that your mind state has an effect on other people and their mind state has an effect on you. The Buddha talked about this in terms of mindfulness of inside, mindfulness of outside, and mindfulness of inside and outside. So if we were talking about active mentalizing in that context, what that would mean is you're aware of your internal state and your external presentation. You're aware of the other person's external presentation and how that represents their internal uh, experience. That what they're doing has an effect on you and that you can track that effect and how you're responding to them has an effect on them and you're able to track that. So in an active mentalizing mode, that's what you're doing. You're back and forth on those. If I'm doing this, it's having that effect. 
I'm doing this because I feel this way and then they're responding and that the way that they're responding has an effect on me and they're responding that way because of what their internal state is and what I'm doing and how what I'm doing is affecting them. Can you in each moment maintain your active mentalizing like that so that you can then be skillful in the way that you respond to your partner. You can be collaborative in the way that you respond to your partner because if you lose your capacity to mentalize you will also lose your capacity to collaborate in the relationship. Hopefully one of you is online at all times but I think that everybody's aware of what happens when both people stop mentalizing at the same time and how the relationship can just really spin into difficulties that if both people were actively mentalizing it wouldn't. Is that making sense? So one of the things about this that's collaborative is to recognize and monitor your own uh, capacity to mentalize and when you find that you can't mentalize you alert your partner that you've lost the ability to mentalize and so whatever content that you're discussing that's dysregulating needs to be put on hold until you can come back into the capacity to mentalize or the capacity to emotionally regulate. The reason why this is important for your partner to understand and be willing to do is you won't accept any agreement you come to later that you make when you can't mentalize. And so you're not actually making a, a, an agreement that will hold and you'll have to do it over again anyway. Is that making sense? In order in intimate relations, particularly in these primary A relationships that are so relationship intensive, if you make an agreement that both people feel they're winning in, those kinds of disagreements will settle and they won't keep coming up in the relationship. But if you make an agreement with somebody where one or the other party doesn't really feel settled about it, it will keep coming up again. And so it isn't in your interest to allow your partner to settle for something that they won't be able to live with because they won't be able to live with it. You said, you agreed. Yeah, I agreed, but I was under duress and I wasn't mentalizing and I can't do it. <laughs> So you want to really keep at it and keep negotiating. I know I, I, I use business terms and some people find that difficult in relationships. You keep talking it through until you both feel like you're winning and you both really are willing to agree to whatever the compromise is, whatever the collaboration is. And if you do that effectively then it settles. And if you don't do that then you haven't done that and it's not going to settle. And it's just structurally not going to settle. And even if you get the upper hand temporarily, it is going to come back. And that over time wears down people's willingness to keep at it with you. Remember we're trying to create this safe, secure couple bubble, this base of operations for our solo exploration and if you're constantly being consumed, if your energy is constantly being consumed, renegotiating, having to go through the same stuff over and over again, 
it isn't available for you to explore. So it really is in your interest to make these agreements and stick to them because it supports your exploration. If you want a collaborative partner, you have to collaborate in the care of them. If you don't want a collaborative partner, then you have to accept that your partners are periodically going to burn out from lack of care. <laughs> and you're going to have to get new ones, or you're going to have to uh, put in an intensive amount of energy to take care of them. Well, because they've collapsed on you. Is that making sense? In terms of Dunbar, what he said was, you have A relationships that you, and I like to really concretize those descriptions. Somebody you tell everything to and somebody you take care of on a daily or every other day basis. And then you have B relationships or are people you tell everything to and that you take care of on a weekly or every other week basis in person. All of this is in person. It is unreasonable to expect one person to provide all of your needs. It just, it would be miraculous to find a person that could do that. But you could probably, in a small group of people, get your needs basically covered. And so you would make a deal with your, your A relationship that because they're not able to cover those needs for you, you're going to get them met by other people, and that's not going to threaten the, the, the couple bubble. It's not going to threaten the couple bubble because you're not going to be talking with the B person in a way that your A would be bothered by it. And you're not going to violate any of the agreements that you have with your A relationship, but you're going to get the, need, uh, the needs that you have that they're unable or, un or not willing to do for you met by other people. But the way that it's a win-win is that that's all out in the open and the way that you're going to do it is all agreed upon and you keep the agreement so that you get to have that met and, uh, and they don't feel threatened by it. Not making. So you have a mind state, they have a mind state. Uh, you need to track whether your mind state is accurate or not. You need to track the interactivity that mind states have with each other. You need to understand that you have an agenda that is different from other people's agenda and it's okay for each of you to have your own agenda. You make agreements about where your, your agendas are going to align, but your agenda is your agenda and their agenda is their agenda. And that's fine. Um, and then uh, meaning making. How do you make meaning? You may not make meaning the same way that your partner makes, a m makes meaning out of things. And so you have to support your partner in their meaning making, even if it doesn't make meaning for you and they have to support you in your meaning-making even if it doesn't make meaning for them. What often happens is you devalue the other person's uh, exploration because you don't find value in that exploration and you can't do that. You really do have to support what they find meaningful. In secure um, uh, childhoods, this process is learned naturally. You, have you ever been around a two-year-old? They'll run off and they'll bring, they'll find something that they find interesting and they'll run back and they'll hand it to you. And then you'll take it and you'll look at it. And it's a broken shell, which actually has no interest to you whatsoever. But you look at it and you talk to the kid about it and then you hand it back to the kid and then they run off and they bring something else. 
and you engage in this dialogue with the kid about whatever it is that they're finding, whatever they're uh, finding interesting, not because you need to find what's interesting in what they find interesting, but that you're delighting in their exploration, you're delighting in their beingness. That's what that is. So that expression of delight in, in the beingness of the person and their, their activities is the thing that teaches the, the value of exploration, but also the, the sharing of exploration. And if you didn't have that in childhood, you're going to have deficits in these areas, and these are skills that you need to learn in order to support your partner well. And then hopefully they have them or they learn them so that they're able to support you well. You don't have to go do your partner's exploration. They're going to go do it. But you do have to listen with interest and delight in, in their return and what they found out, not necessarily because you find what they found out so interesting, but you're caring for them and you find that their enjoyment of this is delightful to you. Is that making sense? And, and you, you can't not do it. It's, it's really what you have to do for them so that they can go explore. And it's, it's mutual. So you're doing something that's being, being done for you. All of our conditioning is different and so all of the things that we find meaningful are different and that's just how, that's what this human condition is. And in, in Buddhism it's really this idea that you accept things the way that they are and this is really one of those things. This is, this is the nature of human relationships and what we need to do for each other so that we can find meaningfulness. And if we can find meaningfulness then we're, we're really willing to go out there and and engage in life and if we can't find meaningfulness we begin to gradually withdraw from it and that withdrawal only exacerbates the, the, the despair that we can feel about not finding meaning. So in order to, and I'm, I'm talking, the mentalizing that I'm talking about is mentalizing that you learn in the infant parent uh, dyad. So in active mentalizing, there's four dimensions that you would learn in relationship to your caregiver. The first is spontaneity versus monitoring or control. Uh, in meditation, we would say in, in an open awareness meditation, you just allow whatever is happening to happen, but at the same time you monitor it. So that's the two dimensions of that. You don't interfere or control in any way with what's happening, you just monitor it. In the self and uh, uh, other is the next one. You track, this is your experience, and you track the other person is, that's their experience, and you don't conflate them. You don't experience them as the same thing. Uh, internal versus external, this is my internal experience, and this is how I'm presenting it externally. That's their external experience, and it's representative of their internal experience and you're able to track those dimensions. And then cognitive, this is my thoughts, and then affective or emotional, this is what I feel, this is the emotion that I feel in response to that. Is that making sense? In a secure dynamic, these are all operating already. 
um, when we look at the mentalizing scales that we can test, secure people tend to test six or higher on a nine-point scale with no intervention. And then as you look at the different uh, attachment strategies, the mentalizing capacity goes down. Dismissing people tend to score in the four to five range without intervention. Preoccupied people in the three to four range and disorganized people in the two to three range. It's an exponential scale. So somebody who mentalizes at a three mentalizes at twice the capacity of a two. Somebody who mentalizes at a six is it's exponentially greater in terms of their ability to track their own thought processes and how they create the world. Gone. Gone. Praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. <laughs> so when you look at this, this process of mentalizing and the limitations in mentalizing that come from the interaction between parent and infant, secure kids Everybody starts as an auto-regulator. Everybody starts with only the internal experience and nothing else. And then as the brain develops in the first few months of life, say around four or five months old, you become aware that people come and take care of you. And so you switch to an external uh, experience. And the internal system of emotionally regulating yourself and regulating your experience becomes an externally focused system where you become focused on the person who comes to regulate you. And in a dyadic experience with a caregiver that's good enough, the system that they use to inform you of what's going on and regulating you, you gradually internalize until you're able to do it for yourself. So you regulate in relationship to someone else, but then you also develop mastery at regulating when they're not there so that you can be capable of exploration that if you can't do that, you're not actually capable of exploration. Infants that grow up to be dismissing adults are profoundly neglected as children. Nobody comes for them. And so they never move out of the auto-regulating experience. So they have the experience that's largely created internally for them. So when you look at the map of mentalizing, they don't do spontaneous. Everything is filtered through self. They're, they're controlled and rigid. Uh, on the dimension of self and other, they don't really ever track the other. They only track themselves. And so the experience that they create internally is the one that they project outward. And that's what they think is happening because they don't compare it to what's happening with the other person. It's an internal experience for them, not an external experience. Their whole reality is what they create for themselves internally, and they really don't investigate the outside world in order to see whether it's accurate or not. They don't monitor whether their mind state is accurate. And then they're very cognitively oriented because they disconnect from their body and they suppress awareness of their emotions. That's what auto-regulating strategies are, basically suppressing emotion. And that they learned all of that in being uh, abandoned 
by their caregivers, neglected by their caregivers, and left to their own devices to invent all of this. Kids who get through the, the, the auto-regulating stage into the external regulating stage have a caregivers that come intermittently. Sometimes they come right on cue, sometimes they come and miss a tune, sometimes they don't come. And because the child is unable to predict what the reaction is that they're going to get from their caregiver, they become completely focused on the, the caregiver and they lose track of themselves. So you'll notice that somebody who's a preoccupied adult, they're very spontaneous, but they don't monitor anything. So they're constantly throwing things out there, trying to get the attention of their caregiver, but they don't really monitor how they land or whether they're communicative. They tend to be other-oriented and not self-oriented. They're so focused and enmeshed in the mind state of the other person that they lose track of themselves. Uh, they're very externally focused. They're very good at a kind of pseudo-empathy, which is where they can read the changes in people's expressions and body language, but because they don't compare it to their own and they don't uh, have this balance back and forth, it becomes teleological, which is the second kind of non-mentalizing, where they, they, under, they read the, the external presentation of someone else and then they assign a meaning to it because they don't validate whether their interpretation of what's happening is accurate or not. They engage as if their version of it is accurate. And then they're very emotionally volatile and not very cognitively oriented, not very logically oriented, because they never got past having someone else, having, having to have someone else regulate their emotions. So they're constantly looking for the other person to regulate their emotions and have not developed the skill to do it themselves, which they would have if they had been engaged in a, in a dyadic relationship with a caregiver where the caregiver sensitively responded to them and then taught them how to regulate their emotions. Is that making sense? One of the reasons that dismissing people and preoccupied people match well is because dismissing people suppress awareness of their emotions and in suppressing awareness of their emotions they suppress awareness of the empathetic the felt empathetic experience of someone else so the emotional chaos of a preoccupied person doesn't bother them because they don't feel it is that making sense so the preoccupied person can be completely dysregulated and volatile emotionally and it doesn't affect the the, the dismissing person because they don't feel any of it. They just look at it logically and offer logical solutions to the chaos of the preoccupied person. That's how that works. That's how that works. <laughs> so a preoccupied person tends to be the opposite of a dismissing person they tend to be totally spontaneous, they tend to be other-focused, they tend to be externally focused, and they tend to be emotional. And so when they come together between two people, you can get a complete mentalizing set. <laughs> <laughs> and that creates great dependence on each other, right, for the balance that comes from that. 
Disorganized people, on the other hand, can be any of these combinations or all of them at different times, depending on the circumstance, which is one of the reasons that makes them so difficult to be in relationship to. It's very confusing how, how it's, it becomes completely unpredictable how they're going to respond to a situation. The problem with that is that it undermines reliability. If you know somebody well, you likely know how you have to present something to them so that they'll get it. But if, uh, and you, you know this because you've done it over and over again and you can recognize, they're organized, they tend to respond in a consistent way that makes them reliable. But if you have somebody and you can never predict how they're going to react to you, then it never settles and you never rely on them because you can't figure out what to do. It creates a kind of chaos or disorganization in that. Is that all making sense? So the four dimensions of uh, mentalizing are spontaneous versus controlled, self versus other, internal versus external, and cognitive versus affective. And then we have three non-mentalizing modes, which are psychic equivalents, where you think you know what's going on and everyone is having the same experience as you are. Teleological, where you're reading the external presentation of it and assigning internal meaning to it, and then acting as if your interpretation is correct. And the last one, which I haven't talked about, is called um, pretend mode. Pretend, pretend mode. Pretend mode, uh, um, depending on what your attachment strategy is, shows up in different ways. But what happens is, you, uh, if you still have awareness of what your authentic response is, you can get so far down the rabbit hole that you no longer know, so far down the rabbit hole of pretend mode that you no longer know what you're authentically feeling in a situation. But let's say, you're not that far gone and you can track what the authentic response is. You have the authentic response to the experience, but you're afraid that if you express that you'll be abandoned and so the, the attachment mechanism activates. And because you're afraid and you're in pretend mode, the, the, the inauthentic thing that you could say instead arises in the mind. And if you push into that, it immediately relieves the abandonment terror. So you experience pretend mode as effectively regulating your attachment activation and effectively regulating your abandonment terror. But what you don't track is that a little while later you're angry at the person because they made you be untruthful or they made you not tell them what you really wanted. And if you can't tell them what you really want, they can't really give it to you because nobody is psychic. Sorry. Or maybe we all flunked um, 101, psych, uh, Psychicness 101 in high school, who knows? <laughs> the reason that you know how to take care of the person that you're with is because they've told you how to do it and you've agreed to do it for them. Is that making sense? And the reason that they know how to take care of you is because you've told them how to do it and they've agreed to do it. You didn't magically come up with it, right? Um, 
you push into an inauthentic expression because you're too afraid to be authentic and a little while later you're going to be angry at the person you were inauthentic with because they made you do that. Or you're going to feel in a state of deprivation because you haven't asked for what you really want. You have, maybe you've even asked for something and they've given it to you but it wasn't what you really wanted so you still don't feel satisfied in having gotten it. And then they're frustrated with you because, um, oops, we've lost the internet. So then the question is, how do you learn to mentalize? Let's just start there. And then one of the reasons that we like the Vipassana meditation approach is, is it's so effective in teaching you how to mentalize. So first you have to be able to, to track, see, hear, feel, or the basic domains of, of experience and then begin to monitor your thought processes with that. So I thought that we would do some meditation. Um, uh, we're going to start by doing a basic see, hear, feel, and then we're going to go into a process of monitoring thoughts, one-off thoughts from repeating thoughts as a way of tracking uh, your thought process. If you've sat with me before, you probably know these techniques, and if you haven't, I will give some guidance as we go along. Who here is familiar with the, the Shinzen's see, hear, feel technique? Okay. So, um, I'll...